Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. No duh, right? Here we discuss everything from car news, culture, movies, stories, games, interviews, events, and so much more. Without further delay, on with the show. Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this... I would call it a Sunday special, but considering the time of recording and the subject matter, it's more of a Mopar Monday. So welcome to this Sunday special Mopar Monday combination episode where we dive into the story of how an Eastern dealership created the most one of the most powerful DART models ever, ever created in the late 60s. I'm of course talking about Mopar Norm as he starts his own Dodge Rebellion with the 383 powered 1967 Dodge Dart GT. Let's get into the story. The story here was originally a hot rod feature, but is now on Motor Trend, and the article was originally written by Drew Harden. The Dodge Rebellion isn't entirely limited to the factory this year. You remember the Dodge Rebellion, right? The mid-1960s ad campaign encouraging people to demand more hot in their hot cars? Dick Scritchfield, writing in the, 19, in the February 1967 issue of Carcraft magazine, was talking about a different uprising one taking place at a dealership on Grand Avenue in Chicago. An enterprising young performance-minded dealer by the name of Norman Krauss, better known in the Chicago area and drag racing world as Mr. Norm, was doing some rebelling of his own. Krauss had been trying to convince the powers that be at Chrysler there was an untapped market for their big V8s in the small cars of their compact and sports personal line. But 1966 came and went with no such model. And in 1967, the factory bypassed Dodge and put a 383 in the 1967 Barracuda instead, which the company felt would compete more strongly against the Mustang, Scritch explained. So Mr. Nord took matters into his own hands. The Barracuda was redesigned for 1967, but so was the Dart. The more Norm looked at the new Dart's engine compartment, the more he became convinced that the 383 cubic inch, 325 horsepower Coronet engine would fit, wrote Scritch. It was now that Mr. Norm's Rebellion got underway full bore. Grand Spalding Dodge's racing specialist, Frank Oldsby, performed the swap using a six-cylinder automatic Dart GT as his guinea pig. As it happened, Dodge was also working on a V8 Dart, which would be called the GTS. But Cross and Oldsby got out of the gate first with a dart that had the Coronet's 383 torque flight and rear end with 411 swapped in for the stock 294 gears. Or 294 gears. The swap was relatively simple, though some custom fabrication was required. Headers replaced the stock exhaust manifolds that wouldn't fit the dart's engine bay. The shift linkage was revamped, and the frame required a new box counter center section sorry, to hold the transmission. The engine itself received a fairly mild tune, enlarged carburetor jets, new spark plugs, distributor adjustment, but it was enough to show 390 horsepower at the rear wheels on Mr. Norm's chassis dyno. In the mid-1960s, CarCraft had a unique take on new car testing. It would place the subject car in the hands of a car club to get input from real enthusiasts. To evaluate Mr. Norm's 383 Dart, Scritch enlisted three members of Mr. Norm's sports club, a group totaling 1,500 members who qualified for the club by buying a new or used high-performance Dodge. On a rainy and cold fall day, Scritch, along with club members Bill Piner, Bill Roman, and Al Smith, made the most of the conditions by giving the Dart a good run covering city streets as well as the highway without any clocked drag strip runs. The car performed... The car really performed, even on wet pavement, Roman said. 
On the highway, there is little or no tendency for the rear end to get squirrely, which surprised me since small carts are often hard to keep on the road. Roman, who owned a 383 Street Drag 66 Coronet, felt the dart would give my Coronet a lot of trouble. Piner, who stood 6 foot 2 inches, was amazed at the room in the new dart, particularly in the back seat, which gave him a lot more, a lot more headroom than he had in his own Hemi Charger. Al Smith, who Scritch said was in charge of the sports club, called the 383 Dart an exciting combination. I wouldn't have believed the GT could have handled the 383 engine, but it acts like it was made for it. As for Mr. Norm, he quickly realized that if the 383 would fit in the Dart, then the 440 would too. He told Scritch he planned to offer darts with both engines. The fellows on the strip are demanding the lightest type cars with big engines but not the maximum in a radical engine which consumes a lot of money adjusting valves and carburation. In my opinion, if you want to sell volume, you have to build for the guy who drives on the street, not the half dozen guys who race on the track. The 426 and a heavy car is the 426 and a heavy car is definitely not the answer. We figured the 383 properly set up should pull the dart into the low 12s. It's an excellent engine and has a lot of potential. That seemed kind of short, didn't it? Not as long an article as I was expecting it to be, so I decided to see if I could find another article on the web that told, that told the story in greater depth. And I found two. I think I'm going to go with this one. And depending on how long it is, how much of the story it tells, we'll either end off the episode there or I'll read the last one and see if we can catch any details this one missed. So this article comes from Street Muscle and was written by Diego Rosenberg back in 2012. Muscle cars, you should know. Mr. Norm's 68 Dart GSS 440. Technically not the 383 we were talking about, but as far as I can see, as far as I skimmed over, this article does talk about that 383. So, when Ford redesigned the Mustang in 1967, it retained everything that was great about the first generation car, but was updated to allow a 390 to be shoehorned in between those pesky shock towers. Chrysler responded in kind by stuffing the 383 in its A-body twins, but it wasn't enough to compete. However, an enterprising Dodge dealer in Illinois was instrumental in helping up the ante and influencing Chrysler in offering the most outrageous compact barnstormer the market would ever see, the 440 Dart GSS. The story begins in 1967, a pivotal year in American muscle car history. That was the year every non-luxury big three brand had their image supercars on the market, giving the red-blooded American male, and some females as well, more high-performance choices than ever. It was also the year the Big Three introduced all-new pony cars, debuting two models in General Motors' case, with the Camaro in particular. The, the 396 came with 325 horsepower, but soon was available with the L78 375 horsepower Big Block. On Chrysler's end, the Plymouth Barracuda was expanded to three body styles, as nice as it was, it was still more a compact car than full-on pony car. Across the hall at Dodge, there was nothing pony car about the Dart, but it shared the same underpinnings as the Barracuda. While both cars were attractive and contemporary, they were lacking in the Go department. The top motor was the, was the 273-235. I wonder if 235 is the horsepower. Norm Krauss, of course, saw a problem with this. As the guy running Grand Spalding Dodge on the northwestern side of Chicago, Mr. Norm was the go-to guy for Mopar performance in the Midwest, if not America. Indeed, Grand Spalding Dodge was America's largest high-performance Dodge dealership in the U.S. by 1966. With the Hemi the newly crowned king of the street, the charge-rate successful NASCAR competitor, and the Coronet RT equipped with the market's biggest performance V8, 
Mr. Norm had plenty to offer the enthusiasts except a pony car, and the 273 Dart just didn't cut the mustard. The story goes that Mr. Norm expressed disappointment to Chrysler that there was nothing to compete with Ford or GM, and the engineers responded that the 383 wouldn't fit. Taking some initiative, Mr. Norm and his gang of mechanics shoehorned a 383 in a dart and drove to Detroit to show the boys at Highland Park that, yes, Virginia, it could be done. A few months later, the 383 became a factory option for the Barracuda Formula S and the Dart GT. As installed in the Dart GT, it became the Dart GTS. Rated at 280 horsepower, it was a drastic drop from the, two, from the 325 horsepower available for the mid-size Coronets and full-size Polaris and Monaco's. As the 383 was a tight fit, a special driver's side exhaust manifold needed to clear the steering shaft, cut, cut breathing considerably. Also, power steering wasn't available with the 383, and of course, air conditioning was out of the question. So how was a potential Mopar customer supposed to reconcile 280 horses when an L78 Camaro was putting out almost 100 more? Fenderwell headers would have solved some of the problem, but the 396 simply outclassed the 383. For 1968, the Dart GTS became a full-fledged model that came standard with the brand new giant killer of a small block, the 340. The 383 was bumped up to 300 horses thanks to the new cylinder heads, but the same motor in the new Super B was rated at 335 horsepowers, plus still no power steering. To make matters worse, not only did GM's pony cars continue to outpower the 383, but also Chevy's redesigned Nova could accommodate the 396. Again, the math. 300 horsepower versus 375. That's when Mr. Norm decided to get crafty once again and install a 440. The 440 Magnum had been introduced in 1967 for the Coronet RT and Charger and was available for Dodge's big cars too. Consisting of a 4.32 bore and 3.75 stroke, it was an outgrowth of, 19, of 1964 to 1965's 426S Street Wedge. With a 10.1 to 1 compression ratio and a high-profile cam, the 440 Magnum put out a solid 375 horsepower and 480 pounds-feet of torque. This was high on the totem pole in 1967, surpassed only by the 426 Hemi and not much else. As installed in the Coronet RT or Charger, low 14s were cake. All 440 darts received the engine M in the VIN to signify special order, mo order motor. As installed in the dart, however, ah, to, a, to install a 440 in an A-body, Grand Spalding Dodge's head of engineering, Gary Dyer, cut out a quarter inch of the K-member to clear the oil pan. A hole near the oil pump was drilled and tapped so a modified engine mount could be attached. The driver's side exhaust manifold was the same, compri comprised, comprised item used for the 383 Dart GTS. Due to the tight fit, two additional makeshift modifications were necessitated a heat shield to keep the brake proportioning valve in check, and a snubber to prevent extreme U-joint angles. Some cars were left with their 383 badges, as it turns out. That's, <laughs> that's very crafty. Or, or perhaps, I don't want to say shifty, because that's a little extreme, but cunning. Let's say that's very cunning. Mr. Norm then managed to convince Chrysler to build 4850 by other accounts, logical as it would qualify the 440 Dart for NHRA, 383 automatic Dart GTSs, but without the 383 and tranny installed. The darts then went to Hearst Campbell, the same people building the super stock Hemi darts and Barracudas to receive the mods to accommodate the 440. 
Torque Flight Automatic was the only transmission offered because installation required less fuss, plus the Dana rear required the force required with the four speed would not fit. Batteries were relocated to the trunk. The piece de resistance was the name change to Dart GSS, Grand Spalding Special. Not only was Grand Spalding Dodge the only place you could buy a 440 Dart in 1968, but Mr. Norm would also give it his patented power tune, which meant you'd have the honor of seeing his henchman dyno your new GSS, then re rejet the carb, recurve the distributor, and return to the dyno to show the power increase. With some decent meat out back, the GSS was, was a capable high 12 stormer. Prepped for racing, they were in the 10s. To put that into perspective, Dodge, De Dodge Challenger Demons are in the 10s now. Hellcat Challengers, Challengers are in the 10s now. That's faster, than, that's faster than, than stock Gen 5 Vipers. And like the 1967 Dart GTS 383, the 1968 Dart GSS served as inspiration to Chrysler because for 1969, Chrysler released the 440 as a regular factory offering for the Dart GTS, as well as the, as well as the Plymouth Barracuda. Dodge built 660 GTSs with the 440, giving the rest of America the opportunity for an overpowered compact. It would be another two years until Mr. Norm would offer another unique car with the 1971 Demon GSS, but the 346 pack didn't inspire Chrysler the way the GSS did. You know, it's stories like this which really make me miss the days when the lines between OEM and aftermarket was blurred. The days of Carroll Shelby, Mr. Norm, and Don Yenko where they create a car or the automakers would go to them to help to help the OEMs, the, the manufacturers themselves, create a car, specifically a performance car, for the enthusiast market. I mean, how often how often do you see Dodge going out to Wesley Motorsports, right? I mean, that's a bad example because they did actually go out to Wesley Motorsports. Wesley Motorsports got the red-eye engine. But Wesley Motorsports or anyone else for tuning, for, for help with a car, most of it's in-house now. And as great as that is, what makes me, why it saddens me so is that we just don't really have stories like this anymore. Everything's very is very much aftermarket, right? Take Calvo for example. Like Dodge would never go to Calvo and say, "Oh wow, we really like what you're doing with the kit, the longevity, all that stuff. Can we make it a factory option now? Like, can we take what you've learned, your expertise, and what and whatnot?" Partially because I'm not sure Dodge would totally have a reason to, because the Viper was a very low volume vehicle, and that would have been extremely expensive doing what Calvo does, but. I suppose with this new direct connection, this new direct connection program that Dodge is bringing back, it's sort of in line with what Mopar Norm did and Carol Shelby and Don Yanko used to do back in the late 50s and 60s. But it stories like that really are proof that that's a bygone era where if you were, you know, you could just be normal. I don't mean to be in, uh, insulting or offensive when I say this. You could just be normal Joe Schmo, but if you had real performance chops, real skill, if you had a lot of good people under you, you could be recognized and involved with the big companies. You'd be recognized by the big boys, so to speak. And nowadays, nowadays the lines between OEM and aftermarket seem to be a lot more removed to me. Sands, Wesley Motorsport, because that's, that's a different example. I say different example, but that's an example of someone doing that in the modern era. Thank God. But to me, it really, it really is quite a shame. Because I mean, even Chevrolet, how many, how... How many Chevrolet tuners are there out there that are involved with Chevrolet as it is now, at, in any in any capacity beyond 
getting a few schematics so they can tune engines more easily. I can't imagine it's that many. Ford, same deal. It was back in the 60s, if you knew your stuff, had the skill, had and even then had enough money though to make to make a ridiculously good product yourself, a car that the market's been wanting, OEMs would take notice. They would bring you in, see the idea. I think the closest we get to that now is FCA's drive for design. So instead of a instead of a mechanical instead of from a mechanical standpoint, we now have that from a design standpoint. And it's not quite the same. It's more so, oh, we want to get the best designers and then give them an inter- internship at FCA now, Stellantis, right? But that's to me out again outside of Wesley Motorsports. This that's the drive for design is the closest we get now. The drive for design contest, I should say is as close as we get to that kind of involvement now. And I guess to better to better put my point, you have to do a lot more, or I think considerably more, to get noticed in this circumstance, to get noticed by an OEM for modifying their product than you used to, than you used to do, or than you than what it used to take back in the 60s. Now yeah, putting a 383 in a dart was not easy, but you could put a Pentastar V6 in a PF generation dart now, and Dodge would Dodge would not send over engineers and representatives to be like, oh, well, we wanted to see how you did it, the product, all that sort of stuff. I don't think that would happen. That's what I'm saying. That the chasm, the gap between OEM and enthusiast, OEM and aftermarket, has widened a little bit. In some cases, more so and less so than others, but as far as I would say muscle cars, as far as the the American market's concerned, you know, USDM, that gap has widened here. And I suppose it makes sense because makes sense because warranties, I think, are more of a thing now than they used to be in the 60s. And and especially there's more that goes into a car now and how to develop one and how to make it reliable than what than what used to go into certainly American cars back in the 60s. So it does make sense. It's just a shame, I think, that that gap has gotten bigger and has gotten bigger and along the way OEMs haven't tried to bridge that gap through through specific means. Though once again having said that, I do think the the direct connection program Dodge has rolled out recently might be that might be a good start. That could be a really interesting start because I think that that's kind of in spirit of what Mopar Norm Mopar Norm was doing back in the 60s, but from the OEM themselves. So I do like the idea. But it's a shame too that Mopar Norm passed away last year at the age of 87. Because as this as this different article actually says, we wouldn't have the Hemi Dart without him. We wouldn't have the 383. We wouldn't have the 440 GSS. N- none of those cars would exist. And I don't think Dodge would have been as much of a performance player, certainly not in this lower end of the market, had Mr. Norm not pushed them to do it. Had, had he not basically forced their hand by doing it himself and then driving the car, having one of his mechanic, having one of his engineers drive the car down the Highland Park. I think to more concisely state my point from earlier normal people just had more influence at least in this circumstance they had more influence over oems back back in the 60s back in the muscle car era right the gold, the alleged golden age of the muscle car era right they had a little bit little bit more influence and it's a shame that it takes a lot again i think it takes a lot more now to to work with automakers in the same capacity but the other side 
the other side of the spectrum is that makes sense. You know, to play devil's advocate, that makes sense. There's a lot more that, as I said earlier, there's a lot more that goes into a car now. A lot more electronics, specifically, that goes into a car now, and that's really, really expensive. So it makes sense. It's just a shame because I love I love these stories. And it just makes me think, well, when 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 are we going to get to that point again? If we ever do, when are we going to get to the point where, you know, ordinary people have have that kind of influence over what OEMs do, where they actually decide to make the product themselves, where it's such a good idea with such good execution, you're like, well, hell, <laughs> like it'd be stupid if we turned it up now. But I think that's all the more reason why we should cherish the work Mopar Norm put into these, put into these A-body Mopars, put into Dodge, put into put into his dealership because we're all better for we're all better for the fact a 440 Dart, a 440 68 69 Dart exists and a 383 GTS Dart exists. And as far as I remember, the dealership, or at the very least, the kind of performance company is still around. Mopar Norm is still a performance company. It doesn't have, I think, the same cachet that it did back in the 60s, but it is still around, which is really, really cool. If I ever got the chance, I should see where they are and pop, pop down to that state and do a video on them, see what they're doing now, what it's like. But yeah, just it's... I love I love this story. I, I love this story because it's something I keep coming back to. A, just a dealership in Chicago. A dealership in Chicago had that much influence over Dodge as a whole and created created a compact legend, created a formidable compact car that went up that went against what Ford and Chevrolet were putting out at the time. Gave Mopar gave Mopar fans their own version of a Nova SS, right? That's that's what I really love. It's just it's so funny. That outsiders beat the OEM at their own game to me. That's the funniest part about the whole story, and that's why I love it. And I love the dart of this era because I love, I like smaller cars personally, less weight, better handling, shorter wheelbase, all that stuff. And yeah, it's a muscle car, the dart, the dart GTS. So it's not, you know, saying better handling is not, it's not saying that much for the era, but still, less weight, shorter wheelbase, that helps. And with that big of an engine, it's a ride. It's just, it's a squarer. I'm not saying this quite literally, but it's a square, it's a more square-bodied Cobra, in the sense that it's a small car with a massive engine. That massive engine yeets the thing to the to the moon and back. Like, what what does that engine have to pull itself? Like, that's pretty much it. Of course, parasitic losses and whatnot. But yeah, I love this, and I feel like Dart Dart GTS 383s, GT 383s, 440s, all that stuff. All of those are very underrated. You always hear the the Chargers, the Challengers. The GTXs, but what about the darts? Because they were lighter and had similar power. If I remember correctly, in some in some cases, these were actually faster. These were faster than the bigger Mopars because they were lighter and made similar power. And that's what that's what I really love about it. And I love the stuff. I just love the design of this era of dart. 60, 67 to sixty nine. I love it. The only thing that would make it better for me personally is if it was more of a fastback rather than. Like a gen, like a nineteen sixty four Mustang coupe kind of a look, where you have a lot of trunk cab kind of in the middle. But having said that, with the roofline, it is more of a. It's not more of a fastback roofline, but it's not. It's not like the Mustang either, where it's very flat looking. It's more. It's more of a Charger design, and that's what I love about it so much, or one of the things I love about it so much. Just such such a really handsome looking compact car, and it's a shame compact cars don't look like this anymore. They kind of can't, obviously, for packaging reasons, but God, just such a cool looking car. And I'm so glad Mopar Norm brought it, got the 383 in the car, and then had one of his engineers take it to Chrysler and be like, ah, uh, uh-huh, what? 
told, told you 383 would fit. In any case, so what do you guys think of the 383 dart? Like it, hate it, somewhere in between. What do you think of the story? What do you think of the story? Let me know in the comments below. In any case, so I hope you all enjoyed this Sunday special Mopar, Mopar Monday combination of an episode. If you did, please make sure to like, comment, share, and... Oh, wait, that's YouTube. Please make sure to like the, like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, share, and consider subscribing. And if you do subscribe, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Please make sure you hit the little notification bell and then all notifications that way you're notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but you don't ever want the Podbean mobile app, hey, not a problem. Boot up wherever you get your podcast, tap in Cody's Car Conundrum, and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I will see you all next time. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full-throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.